HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, made in harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using Bento Box today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com slash chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash chef. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Sprinkles co-founder Candace Nelson. In today's episode, we'll talk to Candace about cupcakes, a serious business helping other food entrepreneurs grow their ventures, and we'll hear Candace's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. In Julia's day, being a food entrepreneur wasn't really a thing. Yes, there were people who owned restaurants. Sometimes they were chefs, but not usually. And there were people who owned food-related businesses. But those businesses weren't run that much differently than, say, like maybe a shoe business. The idea that you could combine your passion for good food and cooking into a business that would inspire and delight is really a recent innovation. I'd like to believe it's also a product of Julia's legacy. Here's why. Through her own career path, Julia was instrumental in laying the groundwork for the idea that you could be a food professional. While she may have begun as a home cook trying to inspire other home cooks, Julia evolved into a role model and mentor, particularly for women. She blazed a trail that said, you can take your passion for food and cooking and turn it into whatever kind of job you want. Her example said the two do not have to be mutually exclusive, and most importantly, that it's a legitimate career choice. This may seem a bit obvious now, but 30 years ago, this was a radical idea. Someone who Julia would be very pleased to see how she took a passion for baking and turned it into a thriving business is Candace Nelson, the co-founder of Sprinkles. Billed as the world's first cupcake bakery, Sprinkles is widely credited with launching the gourmet cupcake onto the American food scene. When it first opened in Beverly Hills in 2005, there were throngs of people clamoring for its sweet and distinctive beauties. 
I remember waiting in those lines. Today, Sprinkles has grown into a nationwide business with 22 locations and more than two dozen cupcake ATMs. Stay tuned to find out what that is. A trained pastry chef, Candace, is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Sprinkles Baking Book, and you may recognize her from TV as a judge on Netflix's Sugar Rush and a veteran of 10 seasons of Food Network's Cupcake Wars. Her journey as a food entrepreneur, alongside her husband and business partner, Charles Nelson, led them to found CN2 Ventures, which makes early-stage investments in retail food, direct-to-consumer, and branded consumer product businesses. One of those is the rapidly growing Pizzana, a neo-Neapolitan pizzeria with three locations in Los Angeles, garnering a Michelin Bib Gourmand Award. She joins us today to talk about cupcakes as a path to success and what it means to be a food entrepreneur. Welcome to the podcast, Candice. Thank you so much. Thank you for that lovely intro. I was enjoying it, listening along. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> yes, it ends up being ab- abstract, right? Listening to someone else's. Uh... <laughs> so let, let's go back to the beginning, because I'm really curious. I think, you know, we have a pretty broad range of people who are food aficionados, Julia fans, work in food, just like eating out. So it's a really broad audience. And I think it's always interesting for people who are kind of mulling over their relationship with food, you know, so how did you kind of turn this passion you had for baking cakes into like a fully fledged business? Well, it was definitely a journey. It did not happen overnight. And I like to say I went from banking to baking because mm-hmm. out of out of college, I actually started in an investment bank, which is about as dry and boring as as they come. I used to go to cocktail parties and people would ask what I did and it was just a conversation stopper which which I mention only because it's the in you know such contrast to you know when I tell people that I make cupcakes for a living that is just a conversation starter so I started in investment banking and it was the dot com boom of the late 90s I was working with tech companies and then eventually went to go work for a dot com and then the bottom dropped out it was the dot combust. And myself and basically everyone I knew in San Francisco was out of a job. And a lot of my friends went, started going back to school or, you know, changing careers. A lot of my friends were actually going to get their MBA, which was sort of the next path, the next sort of step in a, you know, financial path. And it was, that was sort of expected of me as well. But one of the fun things about one of the few fun things about working, um, you know, 100 hours a week at an investment bank during the time was that we did have these amazing um, expense accounts. We did these incredible closing dinners. And San Francisco, of course, is such an incredible food city. So, you know, I had grown up in a family that that loved food and I, I grew up baking with my mom. So I had this real appreciation for food. But it wasn't until I was an adult, you know, working and living in San Francisco that this this love of food was sort of really ignited. And uh, I looked forward to those dinners so much, you know, going to Boulevard or French Laundry. And, you know, the farmer's markets in San Francisco were just so wonderful. So instead of going to get my MBA, I decided I was going to go to pastry school. Mm. So I went to a small pastry school called Tante Marie's in San Francisco uh, to get my pastry certificate. And really what I wanted to understand is, you know, people talk about pursuing a passion, Um, you know, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And, And I wanted to challenge that notion because, you know, when you have something that you really love as a hobby, you know, I baked on the weekends, I would go to the farmer's market and create these beautiful dinner parties from all this fresh produce. And I loved that. It was relaxing for me. It was, it was a respite. And so I thought, what's going to happen if I have to wake up every day and I have to put my whites on and I have to get my hands dirty and I have to, you know, make the donuts. (laughs) And what I realized was I really loved it. You know, I'd been working on spreadsheets for so long that to work with my hands and create something concrete and something, you know, physical that I could actually transfer to another human being and watch them consume and enjoy was very meaningful to me. And so that was it. I said, okay, this is my new path. And I started making custom cakes out of my kitchen in San Francisco. You know, I I was never that far away from the business. I always thought I love 
baking, but it's always going to be a business. I sort of had to marry these two parts of my brain. So I set out to create this custom cake business and I would make these elaborate cakes, you know, um, personalized to each person, each occasion. They were multi-tiered and, you know, really trying to flex these creative muscles that I hadn't in so long. And I realized that it wasn't much of a business. (laughs) Because in this in this country, unlike, you know, the France of, of Julia Child's time, where I feel like people would just go and pick up a cake, uh, you know, and take it home, um, a cake is really reserved for those special occasions. You know, we have cake on birthdays. We have cake, you know, for other special occasions, few and far between, but it's not something that people will go and get every day. Mm. And so I was, I was sweating over these, these cakes and pouring so much time into them and losing money on each cake. And I thought, mm, something's got to give. Mm-hmm. So at the time I had just gotten married, my husband and I had gotten married in the wine country and I had been sort of really pouring over all these magazines, as as many brides do as they get involved in planning their wedding. And I had noticed, particularly in Martha Stewart Weddings magazine, that cupcakes were making, uh, they were sort of coming around to uh, weddings in a new form. They were kind of m- the marriage of a beautiful wedding cake and a cupcake. And a cupcake at the time, it's crazy to think about now, but they were mostly found at the supermarket. They were, you know, boxed in plastic clamshells. They were decorated with plastic picks, which I still don't understand why that was considered an appropriate decoration for a child's treat. But, um, you know, that was, they were pretty much lunchbox fare. And so Mm. this idea of a cupcake as being very special and very elevated really appealed to me. And so I thought, what if I could apply what I'm doing to my special occasion cakes in terms of the beautiful ingredients and this this artfulness, but, you know, package it in this form that anyone could eat on a daily basis, what would happen then? And so that was the, that was the crux of Sprinkles Cupcakes. And so I set out to reinvent the cupcake and all of a sudden cupcakes were flying out the door. And that's sort of what, you know, in the startup world, you call product market fit. All of a sudden, you know, there was more demand than I could even keep up with. And at that point, were you still kind of doing it as a home cottage business and you got the growth even before you opened the bakery in Beverly Hills? Yes. So there was a period of time where my husband and I were still living in San Francisco. I was experimenting out of my kitchen. I had this inkling that cupcakes might be the next big thing. And, you know, really give my husband a lot of credit. He had his MBA. He was working in finance. And he said, if you can nail these cupcake recipes, let's do it together, which, you know, a lot of his finance bro friends kind of raised their eyebrows at. But he was game. And I loved that. And he's we're still partners and married today. Um, So, you know, we decided when Sprinkles became the idea, we were going to open, you know, basically a temple devoted to cupcakes, that we needed to do it somewhere other than San Francisco because the economy was still really in the doldrums. It had been hit really hard by the dot-com bust. Mm. So we went down to, we went down to Los Angeles and to visit some friends. And in the span of a weekend, we went to a few events. And there was literally one cake that everyone kept serving. There was one cake. And I thought this is a very large city. Why is everyone serving the same cake? (laughs) (laughs) Whose cake was it? Do you even know? Yes, yes. It was Sweet Lady Jane's. And it's a wonderful cake. It's her triple berry cake. It's like cream and fruit and berries and, you know, white cake. And it's everything everyone wants in a cake. But I thought, I I mean, there must be some room for competition here. Um, So just my business mind, you know, turning again, the wheels turning again. And so we came down to Los Angeles and started looking for a location for Sprinkles. And now when you opened that location, did you and your husband, because you, you mentioned your business background and his MBA, did you guys go into it in this sort of story, which would be very dot-com-y, like you had a business plan and you knew when you opened the first location you wanted to have more than 20 nationwide? Or was it really like, let's just see if we can make this one bakery work? I think it was a mix of both. Well, first of all, we 
<laughs> we're kind of lazy given that we did used to work in finance when it comes to the numbers. We really, neither one of us really loved modeling or, you know, doing any sort of financial spreadsheet. So really the numbers for sprinkles were sketched on the back of a napkin. Um, you know, we thought, this is how much rent is going to cost. We'll probably need this many employees. These are going to be the extra, the extra expenses. Here's the cost of goods sold. Our profit margin will be this. And how many cupcakes will we need to sell to just break even, basically? And we, we got comfort with that number. We, we said it's a big city. There's not much competition. We can get there. So we, we kind of were minimizing our risk. But in terms of like a fully fleshed out business plan, we didn't do it. And, you know, we also were ambitious people. You know, we think about things from a business perspective. But by the same token, this was very much passion driven. This was like, I, I, I really came to this from a place of love. So, and at the same time, um, you know, let me set the stage for you. It was that period of time, the South Beach diet was on the, like the New York Times bestseller. I mean, it was low carb all the way. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but here we are, you know, bringing our carb laden concept to Los Angeles, which is much better known for, you know, green juice and protein smoothies than it is, you know, sort of indulgent treats. So well, I, I remember doing business lunches and the waiter always had to tell you that there was no dairy in the soup so people would mm. order it. Then. It, it. That's right. And that has not <laughs> changed. <laughs> I'm still in Los Angeles today. Um, but, you know, so that's all to say that no one believed in our idea. Literally no one. Like everyone thought it was a terrible terrible idea. So as much as we, my husband and I said, we could do one in every city across America, we, we weren't thinking that we were necessarily going to. We, we thought if we can just have like a great business in Los Angeles and, and, and have some fun, we didn't have kids yet, we thought that will be enough for us. Um, but when we opened, it was a whole different story. I mean, all of a sudden... We opened these doors. We had no idea if anyone was going to show up. I mean, based on all the advice we'd gotten, no one was going to show up. And there was a line out the door from day one. And we thought, oh, boy, this is, this is a whole nother kind of problem. You know, it's a good problem to have, but there was no time to ramp up. We had so many supply and production issues. We had no employees. We were working literally longer hours than we were had been working in investment banking, which was the whole point. We were trying to get some sort of <laughs> uh, life balance. But um, but it was it was certainly a fun surprise to see that we had struck a nerve. And once you sort of were able to manage the chaos, did you guys start thinking about, wow, if this if we've getting this much success in a low carb market, we should have more than one sprinkles, or did that take quite a long time before you could get to that place? Well, you know, neither one of us, I I mean, I had been to pastry school, but, and I had, you know, worked as a server in restaurants and a host, but neither one of us had any experience um, beyond that. My husband's only experience working in a restaurant or bakery was literally eating in one. So <laughs> we, <laughs> we learned all the hard lessons ourselves. We didn't have a team. We didn't have, I mean, we had a POS. That was like our big investment is we had more than a cash register. So that was a big deal for us. Um, and we had spent a lot of money on our build out and just, you know, the, the branding, the packaging, the design, all that was very important to us because we realized that we were creating a luxury product of sorts. Um, but it took us a while to hire people, get systems in place, training, um, and I mean, even the hours that we had set up for ourselves had to change. We, we, we couldn't, we literally couldn't remain standing for as long as we had planned to be open. We didn't have the employees to staff the shifts. So everything was kind of learning as we went and it took some time, but I will say that we opened our second location in Newport beach a year later. So, um, it's not like we hit the ground running and we were already looking for locations, but it wasn't so much later. 
And what were the things, because I mean, Candace, I can tell you, I remember that time because I lived in Los Angeles then, and I can remember tasting a Sprinkles cupcake, and they really were so distinct. And I think it's it's everything people say about using quality ingredients, which can sound and end up being cliched, but you could literally taste the difference and no one else was making anything that good. But what, what, so that's my interpretation of what led to your success. It probably helped the location. I don't know how much you had a publicist. It was just for everyone listening. It was pre-Instagram. So there was no way people were like, you know, posting like they would now. So what were the things that you thought, I mean, you set the stage a little bit for where you thought the market was, but what do you attribute um, looking back to Sprinkle's success? What was it that caught fire with the public? Well, there were a few things. For one, it took us a while to find a location because at the time it was a really tight real estate market. Now, I mean, my goodness, you can find a location anywhere um, after the pandemic. But at the time it was like you had to buy someone out of a lease. So we had to, you know, we had to present key money to a business in Beverly Hills to even have the right to take over the lease and, you know, um, renovate it to our specifications. So that took some time. And during that time, I started, you know, once again, selling out of my home. So I had sort of this very um, passionate customer base before we even opened our doors that were kind of already building the buzz. And because of that, we were approached by, um, and thank you for saying this was pre-Instagram. It's hard to even remember those days now, but... <laughs> um, Sorry, I'm but aging myself, a, not trying to age <laughs> I know. Yeah, thanks a lot. But um, no, they, we were approached by an email newsletter called Daily Candy. I don't know if you remember it, but it I was, do, of course, of course. Everyone for a period of time really hung on the word of Daily Candy. And so much so that... And they, they really wanted to break our story that we were opening and... Um, and we, we knew the power of Daily Candy because I, you know, I loved Daily Candy. I followed their recommendations as well. And basically, it was an email that came out every day saying, like, what was new and hot in Los Angeles. And they were so and, powerful. And ju- that just to set the stage right, it, was, it wasn't just even though it has a food name. It was like everything and everything that was cool, right? It wasn't exactly. just food yeah. Exactly. It was fashion. It was beauty. It was restaurants. I mean, typically not bakeries, um, to be honest, uh, because that really wasn't what their, their customer base was much more like fashion and beauty. And, and just trends in general. So they said they wanted to break the story. And we had a date in mind. And Charles and I looked at each other. We're like, we're not going to make the date. Like, we are, we cannot. And so we went back to them and they said, well, you'll lose the story. And so we're like, we're going to make the date. We're going to make <laughs> 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 We're just going to make that date. And so it really was such a powerful marketing tool. But no, we had no publicist. We, we, we didn't even have any employees. I was, making, I was making cupcakes that yielded two dozen in the back with KitchenAid mixers that I bought at Williams-Sonoma. I mean, it was ridiculous. So, of course, then we have this huge line of customers um, out the door and nobody, you know, our cupcake uh, trays are all just bare. It was so sad. But the other thing I'll say is that, you know, when you do something different, you make people notice. And and, and this, is the, this is the thing we talk about in entrepreneurship, which is like, if you're, if you're onto a really great idea, everyone says it's crazy, you know, and it catches on, like, that was the right way to think about it. You shouldn't be doing things that everybody else is doing because then everybody else would be doing it and there wouldn't be some aha moment and it wouldn't be disruptive and it wouldn't be exciting. So the fact that everybody was naysaying us and telling us it was a terrible idea, you know, was probably a little bit of a hint that we were onto something mm. in retrospect. Um, and then... The other thing is, I really believe, thank you for saying about the quality of the ingredients. And yes, at the time that was, you know, that was a big deal because cupcakes hadn't been elevated yet. They weren't, they really were being treated as like lunchbox fare. But I also really believe in fresh baked goods. Mm -hmm. I really don't think there's any point in eating a baked good that's not fresh. It's the whole point. Otherwise, I'll get a packaged cookie, um, which I really don't like anyway. I just want them fresh. And so I was baking these cupcakes in small batches all throughout the day. Now, at the beginning, that was a problem 
because mm. I really should have been baking a lot more than I was. But even just the way we staffed ultimately was, you know, before that, really the, the standard was the baker comes in in the morning, makes all the cupcakes that or you know, baked goods that the bakery thinks they need for the day. And that's why at the end of the day, you have those, you know, discounted baked goods because they've been sitting around all day. Mm. But the way I staffed was just sort of, you know, speaking again to sort of my business and background, I was an econ major too in college is, you know, the Japanese came up with this just-in-time production system. And so I thought, what about just-in-time baking? I mean, to a certain extent, obviously cupcakes need to cool before you can frost them and all that. Although in those early days, there were people who were so desperate for a cupcake that I was frosting, piping hot cupcakes, and the frosting was dripping off, and they didn't care. They were like, give me that cupcake. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's interesting because I wanted to ask you before we go to break about your cupcake ATMs, which I did not know about until recently when I saw one in Glendale. But And I'm not sure, I don't, I think you invented it before the pandemic. It's not a pandemic pivot, but just kind of wanted to ask you about when that innovation came about and why you put it through, because it's a really unique thing. And it kind of speaks to what you're talking about in terms of just in time. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yes. No, it was a pre-pandemic thing for sure. Um, It came about because, and for those of you who don't know, it is literally like, a very, very fancy vending machine. And, and you, you know, it's got t- like a touchpad and you check out with a credit card and a freshly delivered cupcake. Well, well, this, they're not being baked in the ATM, but they're being delivered <laughs> via ATM. I want to be a clear human, about that there's now a, there are I assume there's a human being, be- okay, but there's a human being who loads the ATM. Yes, there is a human being that loads the ATM. And when we first launched our, our ATM in Beverly Hills, there was a rumor going around <laughs> that there were like, People in the back, like nobody could believe that the, there's this automated arm delivering the cupcakes. They, they, there was there was a rumor that there were people standing back there doing it, um, which I thought was kind of funny, and maybe came about as a result of the fact that our our IT person did sleep back there for a while because the cupcakes were the the machine was working at you know such a volume that the parts kept burning. Out because you know those sorts of machines at the time, like the technology was not for like quick delivery. It was like you know maybe somebody would buy a few things a day, but this was like going constantly. Oh, I see and what you're saying. So the technology for your ATM is actually closer to the way a vending machine works than a money ATM actually works. It, that's right. That that's very well put. Yes, exactly. So so poor Vanit was sleeping back there at times because he had to be like, you know, changing the parts because you never knew. I mean, it was so brand new and it was became like this attraction and we didn't want people to be, you know, standing out there wanting their cupcake and um, not able to get it. So, but it is automated. There aren't people back there um, servicing, although Vinit was for for a little period of time. <laughs> and then to, um, because you now have, I think as many ATMs or close to it as shops, are they actually... Is the baking for them now done much more centrally than like in the behind uh, always, the ATM? Always, we always have a bakery in the market where we have an ATM. And so that so, bakery supplies those ATMs yes, in that market. Exactly. So now Vinny yeah. drives around to deliver the cupcakes to, <laughs> to- <laughs> we this we're on iteration like 3.0 of the of the ATM. So it's it's much better technology. Um not breaking down as much. So Vanit has been able to get some sleep. But but the idea for the cupcake ATM came about because I like to see my husband and I embrace the crazy ideas. I mean, certainly the idea of sprinkles, everyone told us was crazy, and we just said, okay, let's let's try it. Sort of intrigued us. And then the idea for the cupcake ATM was also crazy because I was actually pregnant with my second son, and I literally ate dark chocolate cupcakes through both of my pregnancies. So I came home late from a party one night, and there were no cupcakes in the house, and I was having a really sort of acute pregnancy craving. And I was like, you know, kind of having a moment. I was like, I mean, I own a cupcake shop, and I can't get a cupcake at 11 o'clock at night. And instead of just sort of poo-pooing the idea, my husband and I started batting it around. You know, what if you could get a cupcake? anytime, day or night, you know, what would that look like? You know, we pay rent 24 hours a day. Why wouldn't we want to monetize 24 hours a day? So that was the impetus for the Cupcake ATM. 
And I assume possibly in the back of your heads, too, was knowing that in the early days and maybe even still, you were fighting lines. This was a kind of line reliever for those who didn't. And you might be able to capture more market share. And then I'm also curious, did it end up proving it? Was it something you could leverage through the pandemic when shops had to be closed or you couldn't do that because you couldn't really bake anyway? No, it was a really important, you know, touchless delivery system for us during the pandemic, for sure. It was, I mean, it was, you know, in retrospect, very prescient. You know, I, I think it was a lifesaver for us. Fascinating. All right, we're going to take a break and we'll be back to talk with Candace Nelson some more about being a food entrepreneur. Stay with us. In the heart of Williamsburg, Brooklyn, Lilia combines wood-fired seafood, handcrafted pasta, classic Italian cocktails, and warm hospitality. Since 2016, it's been celebrated as a neighborhood gathering place, bringing the best of Italy to New York City. Lilia is one of over 8,000 restaurants that leverage bento box to power their digital front door, including their website, gift cards, event management, and more. BentoBox is a marketing and commerce platform built specifically for the hospitality industry. With BentoBox, get discovered, make more money, and engage your diners so you can deliver great hospitality both in person and online. Visit getbento.com chef today to learn more and get your first month free. That's getbento.com chef. Welcome back. We're talking to the co-founder of Sprinkles, the cupcake bakery, Candace Nelson, about charting a career path as a food entrepreneur. Well, in the first half of the show, we've gotten some great background on how Sprinkles came to be, the secrets to its success, but it's not the only thing Candace is doing. So we're going to expand the conversation to kind of the broader idea of the different directions you can go and what it means to be a food entrepreneur. And Candace, maybe we could start with what, what I was saying, calling your move into the LA Gourmet Pizza Wars. And I say <laughs> that because the LA, for people who don't know, is not, as American cities goes, particularly Italian. It doesn't have the same heritage as New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia. So historically, there was not a huge pizza tradition in LA until maybe Nancy Silverton got into the game. Well, actually, I would mm -hmm. say Wolfgang Puck started it. Yes. And so now there's like, you know, but it's different pizza. It's either, it's not, you know, Americana, Italian, American pizza per se. So tell us more about your move into the LA Gourmet Pizza Wars. Well, um, this was also you know, very passion driven. I love pizza. I know, I know who doesn't, but I really love pizza. <laughs> and my husband Me and I, too. no matter, right? And so wherever we'd go, wherever we were traveling to open a Sprinkles location or wherever we would go for work, we were always online looking for what's the best pizza, trying all the pizzas. Um, and so it, it's just, it just, which I just love, I mean, first of all, I think Americans love a handheld food. I mean, that's what cupcake <laughs> is, right? <laughs> that's what pizza is. And it's, there's, there's something just casual and fun about it. And if you can make people feel better about eating those handheld foods, in other words, like, we're going to make it extra special. We're going to make you feel good about it with our technique and our ingredients, like, all the better, right? Take, take a food that people already love and make it better. Um, is sort of my philosophy. And so that's what we did for cupcakes. And then that's what with Pizzana we are doing for pizza. Um, now, just a little bit of a note. I, my husband and I sold Sprinkles a few years ago um, to a private equity firm. So I am not behind Sprinkles anymore. It is my first child. Um, I, we are, have board seats and um, still you know, advise, but I am not operational on Sprinkles day to day. And so shortly after the sale, I was at a friend's house. Um, we'll just say who it was, uh, Chris O'Donnell's house. And I was having a piece of pizza that had been made for me in his wood-burning oven. And I took one bite and I said, what? Wait, who made this pizza? Like it was, it was a moment. And so I marched on back to the, the wood-burning oven, and I met Daniele Uditi, who is our now executive chef and co-founder at Pizzana. 
And we just started talking. I was like, what is your story? This is good. And he told me his amazing story, which is that he had come to the United States from Naples with $200 and his like grandmother's starter in his pocket and lived out of his van for a while. <laughs> which, which we should say, don't try that at home because it is technically illegal to bring starter anything. Across. Not that it's not done. I know someone who brought a vinegar mother from France. I, she will remain nameless, but just we do not advise it. So proceed that's with right. caution. That's right. No, it should not be done. However, it was. And it I'm happened. very happy it was. It <laughs> happened. Um, and so and it's so funny because Daniele has such a sweet tooth. So he loves sprinkles. And so we were, we were really bonding. You know, I didn't talk to anybody else at the party all night. It was just Daniele and I in the corner eating pizza and talking about food and cupcakes. And he happened to say, I've always wanted to have a pizza restaurant. And I literally, I mean, I had no intention of this. This was not premeditated at all. I could not, the words were spilling out of my mouth. I could not put them back in. And I said, (laughs) I would love to do that with you. (laughs) And you'd literally met him that day. Yes. I literally met him that day. Now, he had, you know, a, a, a longer relationship with Chris O'Donnell. He'd been catering for Chris for quite some time. And he had developed quite a, I mean, his client roster was like, you know, Jennifer Garner and Steve Carell. And I mean, he was he was kind of developing a name for himself. So I don't want to say that I discovered him. I certainly did not. But I was the one. He was on the Pacific Palisades pizza oven celebrity he, chef, he was. private chef he, circuit. He really was. And and you're so right. That was a thing. Um, and I think they're all, you know, they're all a little still miffed that that they don't have their, their caterer anymore. But it's all good. Because <laughs> they, they have to get... go to your place rather than him coming to them. <laughs> exactly. They can get, they can just get delivery now. So that that's fine. Everybody's happy. That can make you popular. Goodness. <laughs> I know. Um, now so now you was... don't get invited out. <laughs> yeah. So I just, you know, I just thought to myself, I could see it. I know what we're going to do. I know this, you have this incredible product. And what what's so special about Daniele, first of all, it's just the, his incredible, like, American dream story I, I could just go gush about. Um, he, you know, just for him to, like, come to this country literally with $200 and make it all happen. Um, I, I, I just, I just admire him so much. But he understood. He wasn't one of those chefs that came and said, no, we only do Neapolitan. We do it one way or it's the highway. He understood that he had to um, cook for his audience. So what I mean by that is I think, I mean, I know Neapolitan pizza, people love it. But I think, as I said, Americans love a handheld food. So true Neapolitan style pizza is soupy in the middle, right? And they eat Mm. it with a fork and knife in Italy. And that's it's just not going to fly. Um, you know, in, in my world, it's not going to fly. And, and Daniel understood that. He said, no, no, no. I come from a bread baking background and my crust is based on a bread recipe and it holds. You can pick it up and it holds. And I thought, aha, this is it. Because it was this marriage of the, this artisanal technique, the slow dough rise, the fermenting, all of that. And, and so you have this chew and you have this, this char and you have this character to the crust but you still have the crispness. There's no soupiness. There's, he, he doesn't load it with too much sauce or cheese. He looks for a drier cheese, for your delatte, so that – and then, and then his love affair with Southern California, it, it ended up becoming this blend of like Southern California meets Southern Italy on a pizza that you could pick up. And, and is, so, is that what you guys mean by this term you're using, the neo-Neapolitan yes. pizza? Okay. Yes, that's exactly it. So it is, again, you know, this blend of cultures um, inspired by Southern California. And there's so much, you know, overlap between the climate and the produce of where he's from and now where we are today in, in Southern California. But it's it's been such a fun, fun project that I never thought I was ever going to get myself into. I mean, people say, well, you were in the bakery business. Let me tell you what. Restaurants are so different. They're so different. I mean, people sit down. We have the customer for an hour and a half. At Sprinkles, it was essentially come in, grab your box of cupcakes, and you were on the road, you know, a minute mm, later. Mm, mm. Um, you know, so it's been a wonderful educational experience for me, and it's been incredible to see this explosion of pizza. I mean, L.A., to your point, sure, Wolfgang, Nancy Silverton, but in general, like, 
I don't ever hear any New Yorkers talking about L.A. pizza until recently. I mean, when New Yorkers come in and they say, this is some of the best pizza I've ever had, we're like, we're like, okay, we're doing something right. Um, mm. But then, of course, we have gluten <laughs> I'm like salivating through this whole conversation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, but then, of course, we're in L.A., so we got the gluten-free and we got the vegan and we got the beautiful salads. So it really is a place where you can have that indulgent, decadent food, but feel better about it. You know, it's lighter in your stomach. It's, I, I, it's just, I love it so much. I, we eat pizza on it at our house, like an embarrassingly amount of times a month. I mean, it's, it's on the regular. Um, we love it. Now, I want to tie that up because I want to have time to talk about what you and your husband are doing in your, your venture thing, which I think is sort of interrelated. So it, my sense was that Pizzana is starting to expand, but maybe that's going kind of differently than the way Sprinkles uh, expanded. And then can you tie that together with uh, if it does or doesn't interrelate with this venture fund that you've started? Sure. So um, CN2 Ventures is really about us finding, you know, passionate entrepreneurs and partnering partnering with them um, and getting very operationally involved. So that is Pizzana. It's also a business that we're doing in the early childhood space, but I won't talk about that because that's not food related. And then we also are making angel investments out of that. So we're, you know, investing in companies we believe in and, and founders we believe in at an early stage, but being much less hands-on. So Pizzana, I mean, we're in there. We did the branding. We're doing the operations. We're doing the expansion. We're doing the marketing. We, we, it is It is our business. And then a company for like, for example, a Chroma Wellness, which is this, um, you know, reset cleanse, um, which was originally direct to consumer, but now they're moving into retail. That's an example of of something where I love the founder, I love the product. Um, and, you know, I help where I can, but I'm not in the weeds on a day-to-day basis. So yes, Pizzana, thank you for mentioning, is expanding. We are about to open a location in the Valley in Sherman Oaks. So that will take us to three locations, but we also have a location coming soon in Dallas, Texas, uh, and um, a few other locations that I can't mention yet, but we are definitely expanding. And for those of you who are salivating and want to get your hands on it, we are now shipping nationwide through Gold Belly. And, you know, uh, as... As as much as we eat pizza on it, in terms of eating at the restaurant and getting delivery, we ha- still have a freezer stocked with pizza on a pizzas that we can throw in at a moment's notice, and it's been a game changer. So I highly recommend for gift giving or just stocking your freezer. It's a really, 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 really yummy way to just have an easy dinner. So I think one of the things that you have conveyed really by the by your storytelling of, of your experiencing is how much sort of passion and inspiration goes into being a food entrepreneur. And it is a lot, I think you've described, like these lightning strike moments that maybe were more than one moment, but are sort of a string of things that occur to you. So I was just curious, like, what advice do you have for other people who are listening or saying like, oh, I'd love to do what Candace did? What, what do you usually tell people? Well, don't do what we did, which is not, <laughs> not have any experience before you do it. <laughs> I mean, and I mean, that's just, you know, I don't know, youth foolishness. But if you can get a little experience uh, learning on someone else's dime, that is always a very prudent way to go about it. Um, I, I highly recommend it. And, you know, I think Listen, it's so funny because there are so many investors that just won't touch food. They're like, oh, you're, you know, you're in physical retail, you've got to expand, it's slow, it's bulky, too many people, all of that, because you, you don't get like the multiple that a tech company would get, for example. So you really do have to have a passion um, for food and a passion for the product to to go into it as a as a you know occupation, but also to be an investor, um, a lot of people are scared by it, and for good reason. But I, I love it. I, I can't help myself. I just keep I just keep going back. And, and so, do you think that's key? Would you really advise people? Sort of like if you're just looking to make a buck, pick a different business because food <laughs> takes more. No, no, no. I'm being serious because because I yeah. think that's a good point. And you know, a lot of people like to invest in restaurants because. They want to own a restaurant and it's a dream, not because they necessarily expect to make good money from it. 
So what I would say about investing in restaurants is only invest money that you are willing to lose. Just just send it off and don't think about it again. And invest at a place where you're going to have fun getting a, you know, you want a reservation at a moment's notice. Like, you know, you're going to get a table. That's kind of how I look at investing in restaurants, right? But certainly people have made, I mean, there are so many exceptions to that rule. But I think in general, investing in restaurants is very risky. Now, this is, this is and I'm, I'm happy you brought it up. This is sort of a funny thing that Charles and I noticed. Um, as we drive around the vast landscape of LA, we would always look around and say, huh, there's a pizza place. Hmm. Huh. There's another pizza place. They had all been there for what looked like decades. And our theory was pizza places don't go out of business. So we, not be, we may not be wildly successful, but we probably aren't going to go out of business. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the bar we set for ourselves. Well, and the great thing about pizza, right, is that, that even when you're using quality ingredients compared to maybe I don't know, a, pro, a really protein-driven restaurant or a sushi place or whatever, the cost of goods is more reasonable and controllable. And people don't go to pizza restaurants expecting lots more than pizza? Or or do you disagree with that? No. I Trust me. I Whenever Charles and I go to a restaurant and someone has not cooked the steak right, you know, and we're just like, oh, I can't imagine being in a business where somebody sends back the steak. You know, that's that's like gut-wrenching. I mean, that's so expensive. <laughs> and so we have a lot of respect and and empathy for people in, in that sort of restaurant business. We couldn't do it. We have to be very edited and um, yeah, no, I, we're not slinging steaks. There you have it. All right. After the break, <laughs> we're going to hear Candace's Julia moment. It's nearly time. The 2022 Taste of Santa Barbara from the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience is coming up May 16th to 22. Where, you ask? It's all around Santa Barbara County. It kicks off on May 16th with Santa Barbara Restaurant Week, featuring special menus and cocktails inspired by Julia and Paul Child. And it culminates with a series of curated events on May 19th, 20th, 21st, and 22nd, ranging from talks, cooking demonstrations, a screening of the new Julia documentary featuring its Oscar-nominated directors, farm tours, and an immersive wine tasting at El Presidio. For tickets and more information, go to sbce.events and click on Taste of Santa Barbara. For highlights and breaking news, follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram. Have you been watching HBO Max's Julia starring Sarah Lancashire? Or did you watch the Julia Child Challenge on Food Network? It's still available to stream on Discovery+. Plus. Let us know what you think. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Chava Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it. 
the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Candace, what's your Julia moment? <laughs> well, I'm going to go at it a different way, probably than many of your guests, because I think that Julia really embraced for me the entrepreneurial mindset, because she really espoused this sort of beginner's mindset, this idea of embracing failure. And that is so central to the entrepreneur's experience, right? It's not mm. about, you know, making sure everything goes according to plan. Like in a startup or a new industry or business, nothing's going to, going to go according to plan. So you have to sort of feel the fear and do it anyway, jump off the cliff, and then figure it out. Um, if it doesn't work, try something else. But don't be afraid and don't let the fear stop you, I think, is ultimately what what she really sort of represents for me. Um, and then beyond that, I just feel like, how much fun was she? She had the best like witticisms and nuggets of wisdom. And um, I just would have loved to have had dinner with Julia Child. <laughs> well, no, I think you're 100% right. And Julia doesn't usually get talked about as an entrepreneur because particularly she was not driven by money. And most of what she did was for other reasons. But she had that same passion. And as you say, that spirit of innovation. And she loved that. And I think she would have loved to have been shown a cupcake ATM, especially that produced <laughs> a delicious cupcake. She would have spent hours probably talking to Vanit about how it worked and how she could get one and <laughs> all of that. So I, I love that you brought that up. Thank you very much for that. Of course. And thanks for joining us today. It's been Thank a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun chatting with you. Likewise. And thanks, everyone, for joining us. If you want more from Candace, she's at Sprinkles Candace on Facebook and at Candace Nelson on Instagram, where you'll see she's a lip-syncing pro. To find your nearest <laughs> Sprinkles or to order online, you can go to Sprinkles.com. If you've never had a Sprinkles Red Velvet Cupcake, you're missing out. But I have to say my favorite is a dark chocolate with vanilla frosting, if you can get one like that. And if you're more of a savory person and you were salivating along with me, you can check out pizzana.com for the list of expanding locations. And you can also, as Candace said, order pizzas to bake at home. For all the latest from the foundation, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcast. We look forward to bringing you back into the foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.